Yeah, yeah, let's let's wait till I say. Hello and welcome to this talk at Masterpiece London. I'm Fatima Ahmed and I'm delighted to welcome you to Collecting Natural Treasures from the Mineral Kingdom. This is the first year that minerals have made an appearance at Masterpiece in their own right and I think we're going to talk a bit later about what that means. And each of our speakers is going to explain why this is exciting and why perhaps it's long overdue. Um, I'm going to introduce each of our speakers and then they, we will be in discussion with each other and then a bit of housekeeping. I'll leave about 10 to 15 minutes at the end for questions for those of you in the lecture theatre and those of you watching at home online. Um, so to begin with, Joel Barch is the President and CEO of the Houston Museum of Nat Natural Science. Since he took up this post in 2004, the museum's membership and visitor numbers have doubled, and it's now one of the most visited in the United States. From 1991 onwards, he was the curator in charge of minerals, crystals, gems and jewels, um, and responsible for one of the best collections of, the, of this kind in the world. So he really is well-placed to talk about some of the masterpieces in the museum's care, and as well as the wider history of collecting and display. Um, on my left is Daniel Trinchillo. He's the president and CEO of Fine Minerals International. He has been a dealer since the age of 19, but a collector for even longer. And he might um, tell us how he started becoming a collector at the age of eight. Um, Daniel has owned and operated mines around the world, so he's going to take us on a journey from the mining of some outstanding specimens to their coming to the market. Um, Fine Minerals International is, of course, exhibiting at Masterpiece, and I urge anyone um, who's able to, there's still time and a whole other day, um, to see some remarkable examples of what we're about to talk, talk about, um, and he's on stand 509. And then finally, Alan Hart is the CEO of the Gemological Association of Great Britain. Founded in 1908, the Gemological Association is the oldest provider of education about gems and jewellery in the world, and, and minerals, of course. Alan is a scientific advisor at the Natural History Museum in London, where he has worked for many years. Um, he was the principal curator of gems and minerals and the head of the Earth Science Collections. Um, he's curated many exhibitions, and I suspect he will have a lot to say about the meeting of science and aesthetics that is one of the things that I think makes this field particularly exciting and appealing to a wide range of collectors. Um, so, to begin, Joel and then Daniel and then Alan are going to show us and talk to us about some objects and some um, sites. Joel, would you like to take it away? Absolutely. Are we going to start with the Sweet Home Mine Rotocrosite? So we're a private museum in Houston, Texas. And I, I stress that because we don't get any government funding. So it really matters to us that people come and visit the museum. And the way we approach science is through the beauty and awe of nature. We want to capture people's interest before we try to pound them over the head with a chemistry textbook. I mean, the only time a textbook's ever been a bestseller is when your professor forces you to buy it. This piece is a perfect example of how we go about it. It's the world's most famous, probably, and important rhodochrosite. It's a beautiful jimmy red crystal on a matrix of quartz that originally sold in 1966 for $6,500. We bought it for $85,000 in 1985, and now it's, it's easily 20 to $30 million. So, we stress the beauty to get people's attention and, and make them interested in the topic, but because we're a private museum, we also uh, focus on asset appreciation. So this kind of ticks all the boxes. The next one, I believe, is a azurite, this beautiful deep blue crystal against the background of green smithsonite from the Sumeb mine, found in the late 1800s, early 1900s in uh, Namibia. Very, very famous piece, probably the finest known azurite combination in the world. And it was in the mine manager's collection, a guy named Kegel, and then went to the Smithsonian Institution, who for whatever reason, many, many years ago, traded it out and we were able to acquire it again. 20 years ago, maybe 225,000. Today, these guys could argue, but probably 10 to 20 million. 
So again, it's natural beauty. And people are like, who made that? Well, nobody made that. God made that, or Gaia made that, or the earth made that. You know, it's the ultimate in primitive art because it's billions of years old. And I say it's the ultimate in abstract art because there was no, man was not involved in the creation of it at all. So it's the ultimate in abstract art, but also an iconic and beautiful piece that draws visitors to the museum. And then the last piece is, um, I cannot stress this enough. This is a natural piece of crystallized gold. This is exactly as it was found in the rock, in the mountain in California. It has not been sculpted, it has not been put together, no one made it. It's just as it was found. And when, when people hear the word, word gold, they're like, well, well, how much does it weigh? Okay, it's four ounces. Well, then why is it $15 million? You know, it's like asking, you know, if there's some fabulous Fabergé piece, no one cares about how much gold or silver in it. It's immaterial. So even though this is made of gold, the value is in the aesthetic beauty and the perfection, and that you have this beautiful, we call it the golden dragon of crystals flaring off the original quartz matrix. So my points that I want to make is that these things, and you'll see them also in the fine minerals booth, they are 100% natural. No one made them. They are absolutely gorgeous. They are the masterpieces of the natural world because if you love flowers, flowers are great, but they wilt and die. These things live forever. And they are a highly appreciating asset, which most museums don't care, but we do because we're a private museum in Houston. So that's my bet. Thanks, Joel. Nice Daniel, I'm going to hand over to you. Thank you. Um, so I was given uh, about two to three minutes to talk here before we go into the sort of panel discussion, and I have probably 45 slides. So I'm warning you I'm going to be speaking very quickly, <laughs> and I'm going to be bringing you along. I'm going to hit three topics. Uh, one topic is going to be sort of to give you an orientation of where these things are found and what it's like to encounter them and how we get them out of the ground. That's one aspect. Then I'm going to speak about two of my favorite objects, similar to what Joel just did about three famous objects. And then I'm going to show you just briefly a couple of slides of what collectors do with them. What do collectors who actually collect these and have established long-term collections, how do they display them? How do they show them in their homes and that sort of thing? And so I'll go rather quickly, but it should give you a nice comprehensive understanding of, of that breadth of what I'm talking about. So this object here, this is the finest example that came from a mine called the Pedianera mine in Brazil. And it's a semi-precious gemstone called tourmaline. Um, as you can see, it's got a very vivid dual color. It's got red at the bottom, blue in the, the midsection, and it's capped by green. And that is one of the most iconic mineral specimens ever discovered from anywhere in the world, and it comes from this mine. So this is what the mine site looks like. It's a simple, small, artisanal mine. It's a small, mountainous region in the Governador Valadares area in Minas Gerais in Brazil, and that's the entire mining camp. The 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 footprint of this from a mining scale is minute. The, the, the total volume of rock that's been extracted in this place in the last 20 years is what some mines do in one day for when you're mining for other metals. This just shows you a little bit of the grounds, the dumps, the, the little roads, the house that we live in. This is what it looks like underground. And so we're mining in that rock that you see right there, looking for crystal pockets where the crystals form inside on their own 450 million years ago. So this deposit is dated at 450 million years to half a billion years ago when they grew. That's me standing over a precarious <laughs> spot in the ground. That's the difference in rock. And people always ask me, well, how come certain rock produces crystals and other rock doesn't? So this was a magma pulse that came up from the Earth's crust. It infilled in between um, non-productive rock, which in this case, in this particular geologic model, is the black rock. That's schist. So if you mine in the schist, you don't find any crystals of tourmaline or anything like that. If you mine in the white rock, which is called pegmatite, that's sort of the rock that you could find potentially crystal pockets in, and that's what we work through trying to find the, the, the pockets to then extract them. This is a gallery in this mine where we've already made Swiss cheese out of the, the, all of the pegmatite hunting pockets. 
sometimes those stones come out and they can be cut into gems. And so this gem comes from that mine. And that would be from a crystal that has great transparency, but doesn't lend itself to a collectible mineral. And so minerals sometimes will be, um, they'll lean towards being great aesthetic objects and therefore they'll be preserved for their collector characteristics. And then in other cases, the, the top of the crystal might be broken off. It might not have the right luster, the right qualities, but it might have areas that can be used for cutting into gems. And so we'll turn them into gems. Here's a perfect example of that's a pocket. That crystal in the center the one that I zoom in here, that's what we're trying to get out. And so that's how we'll find it. And that's, that's a pocket formed 450 million years ago in that pegmatite as it was cooling from about 800 degrees Celsius to about 500 degrees Celsius. And those crystals start to precipitate through chemical bonds that are made from the different elements that are present. We'll use a diamond chainsaw to start to cut that pocket out and basically extract it without breaking it. We'll get the piece out. And as you can see, that's the same piece. And then we'll clean it and remove the iron staining that's from millions of years of deposits from water that's filled in those pockets, and that's the final piece. Here's another example. The one on the left is, or I guess it's my left, it, it should be your left. Um, that's exactly how it was found in the matrix, and you can see all we've done is basically wash it off. So these are, this is how these objects form. We don't do anything to alter them, change them, polish them. That's exactly, to Joel's point, how Mother Nature created it. This is one of the most amazing objects from this mine. This piece is about, yeah, as Joel's mentioning, it's in his museum. Um, and it was donated by a client who acquired it in 2005, I think. Um, this is another example of incredible contrast of two different mineral species, again, from the same mine. Those are pink lipidolite crystals and chrome green tourmalines. Those chrome green tourmalines could be cut into gems, and those gems would be worth a few thousand dollars. The lipidolite has zero value in intrinsically. Combined, that object is over 1.2 million for what it is. And it would fit in the palm of my hand and be about seven inches tall. Another incredible object that came from there. This is full gem, could cut easily 75 or $100,000 in gem uh, gemstones of tourmaline, but it's formed this rocket, which it's namesake for the rocket pocket, which was one discovery at this mine. Um, it, this object's worth, you know, a million two, million five, like that, and coveted by the collectors. They would never let you get your hands, get your hands on it to cut it. Now I'm going to transition to another location, and we're looping a little video in our booth here um, in stand 509, where you can go and see this actual object be extracted. And this is the story of the King of Kashmir, which is notably the, the world's most important mineral specimen ever found to date. It was discovered in 2019, and the story in its discovery is over 20 years in the making. It comes from this amazing region in Pakistan, the northern areas of Skardu, and it's it was started you know, from finding single crystals years ago. That crystal that you see right in front of you is totally gem clear, 100% hexagonal in shape, beautiful luster, and nothing done to it by man. And we would see these crystals come on the market, and we knew that they were destroying things in the ground. And so we started a campaign that was 20 years in the making, giving them the resources, the tools they needed to be able to potentially find what we did find in 2019, when all the moons and stars aligned. Um, and they had this diamond chainsaw there for seven years, never used it. It rusted. They threw it away. I had to send them new ones. They got them. They then tried them in 2018 serendipitously, and in 2019 they found a discovery. This is sort of a, a, a great slide that shows the mountain region where these things come from. The white lines are the pegmatite veins cross-cutting into the mountain region. The red dots are where they go in and mine every year, and the green dot in the center, if you notice it, that's where this piece, the King of Kashmir, came from. Every year, 50 groups go up in teams of 5 to 10. They try their hand working in those tunnels, trying to find something. 95% of them are come back with totally fruitless efforts. One or two are lucky and find something, and it's usually not great, and usually they heavily affect it in their mining process. And once in a blue moon, they call us and say, hey, come here, we need help. And that's what happened in 19. That's where they live. If you could see, that's a person under that, above the T in headquarters. And they are at about 12,000 feet. They then go up pretty much vertically at 300 meters, and then they work in that mine portal 
30 meters in, trying to extract it. This is what the ascent looks like. And when he says they live there, they live there. Yeah, they like, live there. They don't come down. There are hotels over here, yeah. restrooms over here, restaurants kind of in the middle, but it's all like 15 meters wide. Exactly. And so this is an <laughs> iconic image of one of the miners together with the piece while it was still hanging from the ceiling of the pocket that it formed in 400 million years ago. And you can see how it's pretty much just as it is after we get it out. And it has, you know, very little staining on it, luckily, because it was from the top of the pocket. Now, they can grow in three dimensions. They don't all grow from the top. They can grow from the bottom, they can grow from the sides, all different places. It just happened to be that this is where the crystals precipitated in this particular pocket. Here it is after they've got it cut out and they're carrying it out. Then they bundle it up into a little package and they send it down the mountain, which is totally nerve-wracking <laughs> and you're totally freaked out because they had us acquire this in the ground and we negotiated for weeks before we actually started the process of extraction. Um, and so at this point, we've got people in Canada that were helping on this project in Italy. I was in New York, the team in Pakistan, the Italians in Pakistan leading this, and it all comes to this one moment, like, does the cable break? Luckily, and the wind is blowing and it's swaying exactly. back and it's, forth. It was, it was a very interesting day. So it was happily recovered well. Here it is down on the ground in front of one of the miners' fathers who was just awestruck, a man who's worked in that region all his life. And there it is at the end. And you can see the volume of this object. And this is today the world's greatest mineral specimen. I don't know if it'll ever be eclipsed, but at the moment that is the, the pinnacle of mineral collecting. And that piece is valued at around $40 million sold for just near that amount. And I can't say where, but it's going to be on public display in the United States, that's all I can say, in 2023. And that's the piece. Last thing I'll show is two, two more minerals. This is a specimen, and this is to impart on you that minerals, irregardless of their size, can be exceedingly valuable. So as this piece was enormous, this piece is barely five centimeters tall, just over five centimeters. But the composition of the sharpness of the geometry of the aquamarine, the, the beautiful white blades of albite and the black shoral crystal, which is a variety of tourmaline, all together are just outstanding balance. This object is about two and a half million and it fits in the palm of my hand. And then another is a rhodochrosite, very much like the one that Joel was highlighting in his discussion and from a totally different location. So that's the dichotomy of two different regions producing the exact same material, but under different pressures, different temperatures, they form differently. And so their crystal habits are different. Their structure is the same, but their outward expression is completely divergent. And that's what makes these attractive to collectors is that they can have a rhodochrosite from three different locations and they all look very different. They can have tourmalines from 10 different mines and they all look totally different. Lastly is collection curation. Some collectors collect objects like this gentleman, his name is Barry Kitt, he lives in Tahoe and he has a beautiful collection that he treats very much like a, a museum display, he has each piece individually shown and he collects for both the, the asset appreciation as well as the aesthetic beauty. And that's his display and he's won several awards for several of his objects at different shows and fairs around the world. Then you have a collector like Guy Laliberté, he's the founder of Cirque du Soleil. This is his home in, in Kona in Hawaii and he has them just as part of his decor amongst other amazing objects. That big giant painting on the, on the right is an incredible Damien Hirst object that he acquired. And so he's a huge collector of contemporary art, Guy, and he also appreciates minerals. That's another display of his in the same area that he's converted to mineral display. Then this is another collector's display in uh, Washington, D.C., and this was the inspiration for my booth. If you visit the booth, I copied his style and design because it's basically a modern-day cabinet of curiosities. So he has a starfish in there, he's got a couple of turtle shells, and he also has amazing minerals. This is Chris Birch's collection in New York in a high-rise. Beautiful display. This is in Texas. This is another collector who collects with their, their collection in the Roy G. Biv. So it's red, orange, yellow, green, indigo, violet, and it's just beautiful, this, this whole display. And that's my part. That's Alan, Alan Hart. You're up. Thank you. Alan, just before you start, I'm going to ask a question which I actually asked you earlier because the terms gem and mineral have been fl flying around, and I'm sure most of you know, but for anyone who doesn't, would you like <clears> to just <throat> explain the difference? 
A gem and a mineral, sorry, yeah. yeah. Well, a, well, a gem is the purest mineral. A mineral is a naturally occurring, usually inorganic substance, has a definite crystalline structure, and they're arranged into species. So gemstones are mineral, mineral crystals, crystals that were cut and polished. Yeah. So the mineral crystal is natural as it's from the earth, and then when, when a jeweler takes it and cuts it and polishes, polishes it for jewelry, it's a gemstone. That's brilliant, thank you. And now, Alan, I'll let you get on. Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about the why now, because, so this is me, the observant among you, that's me on the left-hand side here. <laughs> um, this is when I, I was very fortunate to be at the Natural History Museum for 30 years as curator, and my job was to learn mineralogy from these two guys on my, on my left there, and that's in the middle, that's Walter Campbell Smith, who was head of the department in 1935, and Max Hay, who wrote the definitive list of chemical species of minerals in the world at the time. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate to understudy to these guys before they retired to learn all that they knew about museums. And so that's where I spent my life, in this gallery. And I want to talk about the why of collecting. Where, how did we get to this and where are we going in the future with these two guys championing this fantastic subject we all love? So this is the Mineral Gallery, 180,000 specimens, 350 years old. Um, this really charts the growth of mineralogy. You know, why, why do people collect minerals? In the past, minerals were collected as tools. They're even classed as medicines. They were classed as you know, pharmaceuticals. This was, we didn't really understand what minerals were, and there was hardly anything written about them in prehistory. When was that? What time period? Um, well, about? Pliny wrote about minerals and gems in AD 79. Theophrastus, mm -hmm. before that, the Greek philosopher, wrote about it, and he had a library of 18,000 publications based on minerals and gems that just doesn't survive. Mm -hmm. There are no copies of that. So we just wow. know so, that he made the list. Yeah, so up to medieval times, they were still the two working, working texts on mineralogy and gemology. Mm. Um, I think it was um, Magnus in 1190 who wrote the Mirabilis, which is of gems, and he was the first person who wrote, I go to mines to see these metals and how they're mined. <laughs> and, and from that, there was a great renaissance in terms of why do we collect minerals? We collected minerals then to, you know, for wealth, for health. We used to wear them because they thought they had magical powers. And then we collected them to understand the natural world around us, like we do today for earth sciences and uh, biological sciences. So I put this up, you know, this is our Earth, the only resource we have. Uh, it's a rocky, crystalline planet on the outside. It becomes progressively molten as you go down until you get to the core, which is iron. But we, never, we can never source that area. It's too high temperature and pressure. So we only, we only look at the top three kilometres, three to five kilometres where the minerals are found. Now, if you imagine this Earth is like an eggshell, there's lots of moving plates that move around the planet and they bang together and they sometimes thicken and that thickened continental crust uh, melts at the base and that melted melts the pre-existing rocks which force their way up into these different strata in various locations and then you get new minerals forming and they're called mineral deposits and we mine those. Now, we have on the Earth about 5,700 mineral species forms the whole Earth, which is quite a small number when you look at biological sciences, for instance. So the whole Earth is made up of about 5,000 species, and I think it's fascinating that we now know that all those species are made of only 92 elements, and there's only eight elements that comprise the most of the Earth's minerals, and that goes from oxygen is the most abundant in the crust, silicon, magnesium, iron, calcium. Then you have all these rarer elements that substitute into some of those minerals to give us the geodiversity that we have. And some of those minerals occur, sorry, some of those elements occur in minerals that give us the chromophores and the colour where you see the spectacular stuff you see in these guys' museums and your beautiful display outside. And, and I just think that they were learning in about the processes. So uh, you could walk across Africa for a year and not find nothing. You just see rocks. You know, only at certain points where the right temperature, pressure, depth, time, and ingredients of the right minerals form do you get the spectacular crystals that you see. And I think it's fascinating for me that in the past, people used to mine these deposits for the ore they contained to build our buildings, to, you know, to uh, copper mining, tin mining, and minerals were a byproduct. The beautiful minerals just shoved aside. So when I used to collect, I used to go to the dump, you know, you think you call it a dump. Now people open mines for the actual spectacularly formed minerals themselves. Um, did I click? 
So when I was at the museum, I used to look at the old collections, and they were fantastic specimens. This is an 1818 uh, image of a, of a copper from Gumachevsk in Russia, a very rare specimen, and I saw this image, and I thought, I've seen this in the collection. So I went to the drawers, and there it was, and I put it on display. And, and I thought it was just fascinating. This, this natural sculpture was stuck away in the drawer because they, this was what they were collecting to learn about that particular deposit. And when you look around all museums, you had the Natural History Museum there on the top left-hand side. In the, in the middle, there's the American Museum, the Smithsonian on the right, uh, China on the left. At the bottom, the Sorbonne, and on the right bottom is the, is the, the MIM Museum. And I think what museums have done, is they realise that their, 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 their strategic direction is to unravel the science of the Earth but you use the specimens as a cultural hook to bring people who may not be informed about the subject to learn about science. So you give them small snapshots through the beauty of the object itself. And also, the museums have learned a lot from dealers. You know, they've been ahead of the game for many years. I've, I've been looking at mineral dealers' evolution, how they present the samples and how they talk about them. And in the, in the past, it's much more accessible now. You know where they're coming from. Like when I look at the videos that you've made and, the, and, the, and the, the information there, there's nothing like that in the past. It's just lost in history. So we're actually, we're actually pulling information and the objects together to form what I think is the ultimate provenance, if you will. And I think in the past, it used to be that specimens were displayed. You know, the collections, I know that our collection at the museum was like, get it, keep it. And in the end, you just have thousands, hundreds of thousands of specimens. And then that lost its focus somewhat. People say, why do you keep all this stuff? Of course you keep it, because it's the, it's the real raw materials that tell you about how the earth formed. But also, there's huge beauty inside. And just going back to the Natural History Museum, we, we, we did a lovely diamond exhibition. Of course, diamond is the ultimate gemstone. Everyone loves diamonds. Uh, it's a supreme mineral that's not formed on the Earth's crust. It's actually formed 140 to like 600 kilometers beneath our feet. And they come up in these really strange um, kimberlite eruptions. And we put a diamond exhibition on. So there were a few specimens, but it was very well presented. And we got icons like this is the Star of South Africa, the first diamond that kick-started the South African diamond rush. And to have that, just to tell the story of South Africa and where they were found and have these iconic objects was a real landmark for the museum. And we also forget, we, we went back, what is a gem, what's a mineral? You know, gems are carved from minerals, and I think some of the minerals are as beautiful as the gems that we make. This is uh, Alan Bronstein's Aurora collection. There's some beautiful diamonds at the bottom. But I love the fact that he imaged the rough materials that those diamonds were cut from. And you see they're just as any... Are those the actual ones that yeah, they were Yeah, they're the actual from? ones that they That's came great. from. So, he, you know, it's a, it's a composite image, but I just, it really shows you that, you know, what might not quite be so beautiful, can form the most beautiful gems, but I love the, the, the form and the structure of the rough, especially as you get into the pinks and the yellows. I want the fifth uh, one. The, yeah, that's more, yeah. <laughs> we all, there's no blue on there, but that's a grey blue, but you yeah. know, it's all about the saturation for the, for the value of these things. And I think you recognise that. When I yeah, first sure. went to Tucson, I think this is probably about 210, I think, something like this. Yeah, like I, was, yeah, I was fascinated by this display. It's, I think I've just met you. I've met known for years, but I've realised these were yours. And there's you know, the Pedanera. There's some beautiful Ural Mountains, the Volodask, I'm sorry, the Beryls at the back. Lovely Tanzanite and a, and a Jackson Crossroads Amethyst. And look how they're presented. You know, no museum at the time was doing this. And I went back to the Naturalist Museum and said, this is what we should be doing because I want to inspire younger people to get into the subject, you know, and really take this forward and learn about the value of these objects. And I'll just tell you a funny story, but um, I used to get funding from the museum to go and collect, and, uh, and it was hard to get funding at the museum because lots of people inside museums are saying, I want to do this field trip, I want that, and I say, I want to go and buy minerals. So I bought this one uh, from a dealer called Marco Tironi. Uh, this was 500 euros. And there was not much money, but I loved the geometric form of this. And I took this back to the museum and put it on display. And uh, our director said, this is fantastic. So I told them how it formed. And they said, go and buy more of these. And it was just <laughs> very strange that I said, at last, I found the specimens made people realize not only the beauty, but we can study this. Because this is unusual, because the, the rutile, this is a rutile star, which is grown epitaxially on the hematite, which is black in the mineral, so it's followed the crystallographic direction, but it's penetrated these quartz crystals, so they must have all grown together. So to have titanium, silicon, and oxygen forming these minerals with hematite in a cavity, there, was, there must have been some really strange conditions in that particular deposit. And that's how we unravel the extremes of our planet Earth.
And we opened the vault a few years later, and this has gone, this is fantastic. I'm sorry, Danny, I've copied all you guys. Uh, we have <laughs> lovely stands. We put some of the icons of the 350-year-old collection into the, the museum, and it was hugely popular. And I thought what was really interesting, the people who didn't look at the mineral gallery were then going back to look at the systematic collection because they were hooked in, and they, in. and they wanted to learn more about the science and the why and how unique our planet is. Our this planet the current is. display right now? That's the current display right That's now, beautiful. yeah. And we shift around. You know, we now borrow specimens every now and then. <laughs> so we do ask the dealers, like, well, can we borrow this for a couple of years? Because, all right, we might not be able to spend a million dollars on a particular mm -hmm. specimen, um, but at least we can showcase it and inspire everyone to, to see it. And that's my take on it. And I'll this. say, dealers and collectors love having pieces in museums because it helps the provenance. Yeah, absolutely. Piece. Yeah. It's sort of been vetted by a major museum. Museological influence always yeah. helps increase attention and yeah. get people excited about it. So I think one, one point that I also want to drive home is that you know, when we had the, the, the enlightenment, science enlightenment, science was going to make the world a better place, Isaac Newton and all that good stuff. Um, certainly, that was a wonderful step forward for most of humanity and the human condition. But in a way, it did a service. It's, it sort of took the world of, like, you would take a crystal back then and smash it into pieces and smaller and smaller pieces and see what it was made of. So this became this mathematization of nature was, like, the thing in the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s. Now I think we're getting back, which is my forte, is looking at the beauty of nature, the awe of nature. Yes, we understand the science of what these crystals are, how they form, what the chemical composition is, but what we really stress, and I think what fits well with the Masterpiece Fair, is that we focus on the aesthetic beauty of these things more than any, way, any other, I guess, criteria. And it's twofold. We want people to be in awe of the beauty of nature, but it is kind of a gateway, like you said, like they see the beauty and then they want to learn more. But from our perspective, it's fine art. We collect and display these things as fine art sculptures. In fact, I'm not doing a plug here, but I wrote a book called Masterpieces of the Mineral Kingdom. In fact, I think there are copies at the booth if you guys want to go by and pick one up. I think they're free. Are they free or are you selling? We've given them all away. <laughs> have you really? I, I, yeah, I think I have. I'll send you like four I know left. just a few in the lounge outside, but you might <laughs> have to be quick to catch them. I'll send them an invoice. But again, the point is that these things are beautiful and they are natural. And when members of the public or members who collect in other areas get that in their brain, it's a gestalt moment. It changes their view of the world. That these things with perfect geometric shapes perfectly transparent are natural. I think one thing that comes, shines really for, from all of you is enthusiasm. And I, I wondered, is there something, And but you're all talking, you've talked about a great range of objects, although mm. I think, as you've said, Joel, you focused on the, the Mona Lisa's right. the, uh, of the um, mineral world. Is there something about minerals intrinsically that lends itself to a kind of, I don't want to say, amateur enthusiasm, just enthusiasm, I that can that, then be channeled in, in lots of different ways. I think that when you look at one and you have one in your hand, and like there are these perfect cubes of pyrite that come from Spain. They are razor sharp, perfect cubes that they pull out of the ground just as you see them. And you can see that your reflection in them, the luster is so high. And when you have that moment and someone says, where did that come from? And you say, well, no, it was pulled out of the ground like that. It, to me, they're more mind-bogglingly beautiful than flowers, and flowers wilt. <laughs> I mean, mineral crystals stay forever. And I think it's just the fact that these amazingly colorful, amazingly beautiful, geometrically proportionate, aesthetically gorgeous pieces are made by Mother Nature. That trumps every other area of collecting, and I collect in many, many areas. Mm -hmm. But for me, the fact that they're natural, each one's unique. If you collect coins, there's 12 of them, they all look alike. Every piece is different and unique. And for me, that, that's what really does it. It's natural, they're unique, and they're gorgeous, and they last forever. I'll say that, you know, we, we I catered, to, I grew up in this industry. I started when I was eight years old collecting, and I just can I a, Can I just ask, what does yeah. collecting mean when you're eight? What does it mean when you're eight? Um, that means, so I was allowed to go um, from corner to corner on the street that I grew up on, unattended, as an eight-year-old, and my neighbor two doors down had a tree, and he decorated that tree <laughs> with landscape rock that was white. And I was fascinated as a city kid growing up in, in Queens, New York, to see 
rock that was white. And mm -hmm. I, I was like, oh my God. So I would take these samples, bring them home, crush them with a hammer, very much science-like, there you go, yeah. and, and, and get them into powder. And I would play with them with a chemistry set that was given to me by an uncle from Toys R Us. And I would try to make chemical reactions with vinegar and baking soda. You can do and, and I, I, Of course, nothing ever reacted, and I, I didn't get any great reactions. And then one day I found one in the, 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 the little pile, and I, it had two little flecks of garnet in it, and I looked at it, and I thought it was ruby, and I said, oh my God, I'm, I'm, this is treasure, I'm rich. And so I took this, and I hid this in my house, and put it in my little <laughs> stash of little novelties that I've uh, acquired, and then every year I would go to uh, the country and stay upstate New York with my family, and I would be running around in the woods and looking for stuff, and I would find rocks and things that I had of interest, and my mom bought me a like watermelon rind shaped piece of broken amethyst geode um, from Uruguay that was at like a little crystal shop set up at the county fair. And that was like, oh my God, she spent 10 bucks on this. And I was like enamored and now I had more treasure. And then I was exposed to the American Museum of Natural yep. History in New York on a class trip. And I saw all the amazing crystals and, and that was it. And then fast forward to around age 14, I was, uh, uh, my mom said she felt the metaphysical energy feel of the of a quartz crystal that she acquired at a uh, like a, at a retailer like a Bloomingdale's or Macy's, and we didn't feel it, my father and I, or or, or or the rest of my family. But she said I do, and we wound up going to a gem and crystal shop the following weekend, and that was it. We walked in, and my mom went like a bee right to a flame or whatever that expression is, and just started looking at crystals that they had there for metaphysical energy. And in the back of the shop, they had a whole display of mineral specimens and I was like dad dad look at these things you, you, you can collect them about you can buy them these are like the things I saw in the museum and so the next thing you know uh, we this is like circa 1985 or so we my dad bought a bunch of these things and uh, brought them home and I cataloged them and wrote down all the names and that just led me on one thing to another and so from the age of 14 to 19 we went to shows all across the Northeast and ultimately led me to my first trip to Russia in 1991, right when Perestroika was going on, Russia was opening up, and minerals from Russia were starting to trickle into the U.S. shows because they had this access now, and so I made it a step to go over there, buy them, brought them back, sold them on the market, and then dropped out of school and have been doing this ever since. Did your so, neighbor ever feel realize that you were stealing his rocks? No, Jim never knew I was stealing his rocks. And to, to, to answer your question or to make a statement about that lore is, I think it's a, a very um, natural feeling that you get when you see crystals. So we opened up on Madison Avenue in New York in uh, 2014. And it was a big step because we had already been serving the community of collectors that exists worldwide. We're very well established, our, our main company, which is who's representing here, Fine Minerals International. And so I wanted to do a gallery on Madison to make a statement so that people understood what they could see what was happening in, in our community that wasn't really mainstream or available. And I'll tell you that everyone who walks in, whether they are, you know, going to transition and become a collector or if they're just mildly interested, they walk in and they have this aha moment, this, this wow. They're like, oh my God, these things are beautiful. These things are just the colors, the shapes are so striking and immediately, most of them go to who's the artist or how did you get all those crystals like that or how, how did you remove that from the rock and I start to explain that these things all form naturally they all come out of the ground like this and people are just blown away and you know I think that there's this it's it resonates with people in a way that it sort of speaks to a time of treasure and lore and and science and it just it has so much depth that when people get exposed they often get involved in some way. I wonder if we can talk a little bit about different forms of value that we can ascribe to these objects and how they're valued in different ways. Joel, you've talked about the sheer sort of aesthetic mm -hmm. kind of um, appeal of yeah. particularly those three objects. I mean, it's amazing that that form yeah. of a dragon, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. could, I mean, mm -hmm. you're not, it's not even a stretch to see it in there, it's right, there. Right. But is, is, it, is it that extraordinary aesthetic appeal that translates straight into value, so into a different kind of value? aesthetic appeal is probably number one, mm -hmm. but closely behind it is perfection. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. Daniel showed a picture of an aquamarine crystal, it's this tall, it's perfectly transparent, it's a, it's a perfect prism, 
It's a hexagonal prism. It's exactly as it came out of the ground. And if it's perfect, it's, I mean, I'll just pick a number just for fun. Let's mm -hmm. say it's $500,000 if it's perfect. If it has one nick on it, I mean, we parochially, we call them flea bites. One of the tiniest little nicks on it, it now it's, it's 50,000. 50. I mean, mm -hmm. perfection, if you realize the trauma that these things go through, mm -hmm. forming in the earth and earthquakes and tectonic movement and stuff, and there are thousands of these things found, but one that it's absolutely perfect, has the best color, total gem transparency and total geometric perfection, the values in the beauty and the perfection. I'll argue that point to some degree because if you look at the historic, the most important minerals on the planet that are coveted by collectors, the top 10 objects on the planet are all either repaired or restored. And that's because these objects have transcended everything that we could ever imagine is possible in the creation of an object, its balance, its proportions, etc. And so it, it, it sets itself at a new level. And the fact that it is repaired in one spot doesn't take away at all for the, from the value whatsoever. Now, that's if it's within that species. Says so, the dealer. And, sorry, that's the we have a sorry. spirited debate it's about this going yeah. on for 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> if, 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 a, if a particular mineral species is available in perfect form and it's and you can acquire it, then something that is repaired of the same is obviously going to be worth less. But if it does not exist in any other form and at the highest level it is repaired, it's, I mean, you can give me the, the rabbit ears terminally and I'll take that right away. That's, that, <laughs> that's in the museum, it's worth about 50 million. I, I will concede that a lot of master times. paintings do have a lot of restoration yeah. and they're accepted. Um, and I just add that the thing about it is there's this thing called providence, you know, it's yeah. heavy in gemology as well. Is that, you know, that some of these fantastic specimens have been owned by great people. And so when you find somebody is owned by someone famous, it's going to have a much higher value. Can you give me an, can you give us an example? Uh, royal, royal collections, yep. things like that. The, I mean, there was a, in 1470, someone went down a silver mine in Germany and it, they found a huge piece of copper, that, sorry, it's a native silver, that's literally three tonnes. And uh, the Duke of Albrecht had dinner at that copper slab, sort of silver slab. Yeah. And they took a piece off and they put it in the Gerber Museum and the rest was smelted down for coinage. Those two pieces of silver that are left in that museum are the oldest specimens that exist in Europe. And they're supremely valued, but they're not perfection. They're lumps of silver, but yeah. their, their provenance is fantastic. Uh, for example, Benjamin Franklin, he came to England in, in 1750 and met Sir Hans Sloan, who founded mm -hmm. the British Museum. He was doing trades, and he yeah. bought with him an asbestos purse from a native Indian, made that he yeah. said, I came with this asbestos purse because I knew Sir Hans Sloan would want this for the museum. And Sir Hans Sloan said, I must have this. He's never seen this before. And of course, they didn't know about the, 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 the dangers of asbestos at the time, but it was woven into purses, and that's one of the highlights of the collection. So, you know, we, we do speak about perfection, but provenance and history praise a big part. And I always say scientific uh, Well, I've, this is what I wanted to ask. So can you also speak a little bit about where does scientific value crossover with aesthetic value or can can something be of great scientific interest but perhaps not be very much to look at uh, no no definitely i mean when i when i think of scientific value i think what has the specimen told us about the earth's uh, that's, that's led to a better understanding of the earth's processes you can look at many of the gem minerals like tantanite for example is only found in one place you, danny's got a great one in his case the one that changes colors trichroic what for me what's f fantastic about that is that crystal now we know they've they actually grew 560 million years ago before any dinosaur walked the earth so that you know this thing crystallized from a fluid and when africa then was at the south pole and as you said just a minute yep. ago yep. africa moved around the planet through great tectonic forces this thing sat in its cavity probably like three or four kilometers below the surface until it had a, tr a mountain building event and then it came up just enough within that three kilometers before we came along and we mined it and we felt, and that's beautiful. And then we analyzed it 560 million years ago. How, how, how did that happen? So it, it's unraveled the history of the Earth and we can trace back and we can learn about the history of our planet. So that scientific value is 
eminent in, I think nearly all minerals tell us something about the location they're found in. And to what he was speaking of earlier, that there's 5,700 known mineral species, 90% of those do not form in macro crystals. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is they're, they're minute, they're microscopic or they're small, and we can understand that they're individual species, but for most of the minerals on the planet, I'd say probably only 500 species, maybe, yeah. form in crystals Big that are, are, maybe even less, mm. that we would even collect. And so there's not infinite amounts of them. On the, They're actually exceedingly hard to find. And speaking, Alan, you've spoken of one kind of provenance, the provenance of an object passing through different hands and us knowing who's owned it. What... To all three, all three of you, should we think about if if we were thinking about collecting minerals, what do we what do we need to know about provenance in terms of where they came from and how they were mined? What, what as a museum director, what what are you careful about? You know, it's very Joel? interesting. For whatever reason, minerals have so far been kind of exempt from like you know political correctness. I mean, it's a, it's applied to like dinosaurs and like certain any any fossil with a backbone, a vertebrate from China is illegal. You can't mm -hmm. export it. And there are, you know, people talk about blood diamonds and things like that. But for minerals in general, they just haven't sort of become um, embroiled into like popular culture consciousness. And I think it's because they're, they're perceived as being dead. So in practical terms, does that mean that it's, they're, they're easy to move from one yeah. place to another? You can move and them they don't from anywhere, the you can buy them, you can sell them, you can move them through customs with no tax. I mean, there's just, as long as they're in their natural form, I think they're seen as bits and pieces of the earth. So is that before that, Daniel, for one for you, is that sort of... Before they're they cut been... and polished into yeah. gemstones. Yeah, okay. and so the, yeah. the, the way it works is sort of if you have a... If you are mining, let's say, for copper, or you have copper crystals, the, 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 the element itself is one and the same. And so there's huge mines around the world that are mining for copper, and they sell that as a commodity. Mm -hmm. And so that, that the normal aspect of trading copper is just it's based on its value, it's imported, it's sold all over the world from wherever it's being recovered, and the governments that are owning that, that land resource are charging a, a, a royalty on the export of it. And so the same holds true if it was for a copper crystal or for Tanzanite gemstones. You know, Tanzania gets a large amount of its revenue from the exportation of Tanzanite crystals or Tanzanite gems. And there's all kinds of rules and regulations. But there are no um, prohibitions about moving or transporting minerals because they are considered natural products of the earth in just the same way that they'll sell calcium or that they'll sell, sell right. rare earth metals. As long as it's coming from a legitimate source, it's completely legal and governed by the bodies that do that. One interesting thing is, though, that Canada does have yeah. a mm -hmm. restriction on Canadian minerals. So they look at their mineral heritage a little bit more mm -hmm under the lens, so to speak, and so if, if a, a specimen from Canada is in excess of value, of currently the value they've set is around 5,000, I think, Canadian dollars, they have to, you have to get permission if you're going to export. You can collect as much as you want in Canada, but if you're going to export it for, for sale or to transport to a different place, Canadian minerals get scrutinized by the government, and they give permission all the time. You just have to ask because their museums are actually very robust. With and I think there's some situation where the museum got a chance to match the price or something. Yeah, so yeah. the museum yeah. is able to then buy the object from the person who wants to sell it or export it at the same price, and the person who would be selling it would be exempt of any taxes on that gain, and that's the benefit for them if they're going to a museum. And if the museum doesn't want to buy it, like the Royal Ontario Museum, which is mm -hmm. the other one, and um, I think there's an, the, the ROM is another museum yep. in Canada. Yep. It, they have first shot, so to speak, okay. first right. Uh, and I um, think one of the things that kind of, as I'm thinking about, ties all this to yep. like provenance and ethics, and you have to understand that mining, like, like they do for these specimens, as you see them, yeah. specifically for the specimens, is a very, very recent activity. From 30 years ago, back, my, these things were found by accident. So they're working at a copper mine in Southwest Africa mm -hmm. or Arizona. The miners are mining, they're being paid to mine ore for copper to make copper wire and stuff. They find these crystals by accident. And they would just like, oh, that's kind of cool. Put it in their lunchbox, take it home, set it on the mantle or whatever. So. It was like, I mean, they might as well be like, say, stolen from the Sumeb mine, but they weren't really stolen because they didn't have any ore value, mm -hmm. and the market had not developed for the aesthetic value yet. 
Okay. So a lot of the great pieces from, you know, in the last 30 years, but before that, came from mine managers' collections, the miners' collections. They would literally put them in their yep. lunchbox, and there was mm -hmm. you know, the miners' lunchbox kind of thing. So while they, they didn't necessarily get permission from the mine, the mine didn't care as long as they were meeting their quotas for, for commodity copper. Yep. I think that's probably changed a little bit now because the dollars have gotten significantly yeah. different. Uh, and as yeah. you as as you are all making minerals seem more valuable to, to, to well, us. Not me. He's the day. one driving up the prices. Yeah. I think I've got uh -huh. nothing this, to do with it. At this uh -huh. point, I'm going to ask if anyone Can I just in the audience. Something? I think it's important to say that you know we've, we've shifted also that we now we now reopen mines for their crystals. You know, it's not just the commodity. Oh, it's the mines there, that have been shut. Mine, you know, you know, I know that from this location there was a great copper mine, but it produces great crystals. So people will buy the mine to look for those crystals. That's you know, so the, the what you threw away has now become the main commodity. And I think it's important that there is responsible sourcing, and there are there are rules about when you mine somewhere, yep. you usually have to put it back to the previous state right. that you found mm -hmm. it in, and you have to reseed the landscape so it fits in. But right. you know, we just also remember the, the you know the countless through eons of these minerals been destroyed through natural processes. So I think it's quite good that we preserve these things so that we can recover the snapshot of the beauty of the okay, earth itself. Okay, at, th at this point, I'm going to ask if anyone has any questions, because they definitely have the answers. <laughs> or we'll make something up. Prior <laughs> to the question, what I'll say is, in, in line with what Joel was just describing, this piece is a perfect example of that. So this is from what was originally a silver mine. And so they were working in the Alma region of Colorado in the mountains. They were mining, they found silver, and they abandoned this mine because the high, the, the high, the quantity of silver did not make it worthwhile enough to mine that mine actively for silver production. And as a, mm. what, what was happening is it had the unique mm -hmm. on the planet ingredients to make the world's greatest rhodochrosites. And so miners at the time through history had seen examples during that mining in the 1870s uh, into the almost to the turn of the century and and they had all been destroyed and that got translated through generations until the 50s and 60s yeah. when the first person went and found this specimen and brought it out and that started a whole yeah. trend and it was, of it was two, re two redneck guys from texas who were just weekend tourists broke in trespassed what went into the mine and found that and the yeah, next morning crazy. they woke up and one guy had left with a piece and sold it in las vegas it's a great story yes yeah. but I, I it was a fluke of hobbyists that right. and amateurs that say i think that. that's why i was so curious about enthusiasts yeah, so yeah, yeah. go ahead a qu question over here um Yes, please don't hate me for this. Uh, but I've, I've noticed there's a big category missing, which is meteorites. Oh, right. There are a lot of collectors of, of meteorites. Right. And I know there are some incredible specimens in the Natural History Museum. Yeah. So I was curious why you've left that out, or if so you don't see value from, in it. From my perspective, oh, they're extremely they're valuable. Extremely valuable. They, they have collector value. They have asset value. They have huge scientific value. And I may meteorite enthusiast myself, but because Same. this was more focused on Me crystals, like so the meteorites, the crystals are usually embedded yeah. with like a nickel iron thing, like the palisites, but they get diamonds as well. So I am not anti-meteorite. And we have it's, a pretty, being I, I, in Houston where NASA is, we have a pretty good collection. <laughs> it's definitely a different um, collectible. And you know, it's, it's, it's like gems, minerals, meteorites, fossils, they, they all sort of fall under the same overarching umbrella. But when you get down to the real finite nuts and bolts, they're, they're really very separate disciplines. And so even though, you know, you'll see amazing gemstones from aquamarine, emeralds, uh, you know, tourmalines, all the semi-precious and the precious, those all form amazing mineral crystals but they don't get traded in the same fields or in the same arenas. They're both appreciated by both groups for what they are, but they're very different. And the same for meteorites. We all love meteorites. Yeah. I, I love the, the Sakota lean find in a fall in, in Russia because I was exposed to it because Russia was the first place I went to to collect minerals or to buy minerals and bring them back. Yeah. And of course I learned about that fall. And so I have a number of them in my own personal collection but I don't trade in them because I don't know enough. And there's experts, like I'm an expert in minerals, there's experts that know meteorites like they know. They, as you know, and they're probably, fantastic. they sell them by the gram. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're, 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 they're a finite resource, so you know, they're, 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 they're packages from space. 
And then at the museum, we have yeah. a fantastic meteorite team, and that really is cutting-edge science, and it's almost multidisciplinary. So you just look today about the, the probes that we're sending to Mars, and now we're analysing the Martian surface, but people don't realise that the first Martian meteorite came to Earth in 1911. It fell in Egypt. Wow. So we had it all the time. We didn't know it was a Martian meteorite until the Viking landers went to Mars and measured the atmosphere and found that the, the fluid inclusions, sorry, the, the gaseous inclusions in the meteorite matched the Martian atmosphere. So that led to the whole about dynamism of the solar system. And I think what we're realising, what we've learned about the Earth, we're now pushing that out to other planets of what is out there. So this, this meteorite science is probably the most important part of science for planetary science at the moment. Here's today's trivia. This is 2022, the 100th anniversary of the discovery of King Tut's tomb is in November. Um, the, the scabbards, the knives in his tomb are made out of meteorites. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Yep. But uh, no, I'm with you. There's fusion yeah. crust, and is it oriented? Is it the end piece? Is it the main mass? It's a fabulous area to collect. Yeah. But we were focusing, I think, more on the macro crystals. I hope that answers your yeah. question <laughs> in part. Um, I think there was a question on the left. Yeah, over the third row. Oh, okay. And, and then the lady after that. <laughs> Gosh, I'm getting it anyway. Um, well, first of all, I'd say I love the way the three of you uh, interact. Um, <laughs> we know each other's secrets for 35 with, years. With each other and with the gems and the minerals. It's terrific. <laughs> now, my question is, um, do the big mining companies like Rio Tinto, do they have mineral people now in them? Because it's so important. And has the word got through to... Places out in Mongolia, like Ayutolgoi Copper Mine, huge, great place, and to the you know to people working around there, they might pocket quite a few. You know what? It's uh, it's an interesting trans transition period, I'd say. So, the the big mining companies are very aware of the fact that there can be incredible discoveries, and I'll give you a perfect example for a, um, there's a mine called the Milpilas mine in Mexico. And that is an open pit mine. And that means they make an enormous hole in the ground and they, they circle around excavating, making it larger and larger as they extract the resources out of the ground. And for them, it's about the amount of tons that they move in a day that they can get out, process the rock, crush it, smelt it, and get the, the metals out of it. And so it's a copper mine, and they're working for, a, for the purpose of extracting copper. There's one area when they round uh, the, this, and they'll come around, it'll take to do a revolution, it can take a year. So they're mining benches, working around, and they are only hitting one specific section, you know, let's say for a month, a year. And there's one area where the geology was just right to form amazing crystals of azurite and malachite and other minerals. And I have some in the booth on display. Um, and they hit one enormous pocket that they called uh, the watercourse pocket. Mm -hmm. And when they found it, they found amazing crystals. And all the miners were going in and they were mining these things instead of doing their work and their shift. And instead of the, the mining company saying, oh, we recognize this is a phenomenon of nature, this is something worth preserving, they were like, we're losing time. We're losing ore. So they took some dynamite, threw it in the hole, and blew up all the crystals. And so what was preserved was strictly what was able to be extracted by a few skillful, skillful, skillful miners who went in there at night or off hours trying to get some things and got them out to the market. And so that's one example of where the mining companies look, they, they frown against that sort of behavior. Then there's another mine in Elmwood, Tennessee that forms, uh, that produces zinc. And they produce some of the world's greatest calcite crystals. And historically, they would do the same thing. They would shun the, they would, they would ostracize the miners who would try to collect these crystal pockets. And they would fire them. They would kick them out if they were caught with things. Fast forward, that mine closed for probably two to three decades and then reopened because the price of zinc went up so high that it became economically viable to go back and remine this area. And so when they went back in, they did find crystal pockets. And this time, they went in with different eyes and they said, wait a minute, if we find these calcites and they're viable for value, that we can get them out easily if we take time to preserve them. And so then it was the mining company now working together with their miners to get things out and marketing them. So it's 
it, I think we'll see more and more of that in the future, but big mining, unfortunately, is not concerned with the preservation of amazing crystals, which is sad. I think we have time for one more question, so the gentleman with the microphone in the second row. No, that wasn't mine. I, oh. I was waving my hands about it. Oh, I'm in <laughs> Wonderful. Excellent answer. In that case, that I'm, going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to take one more question, and Thank I'm you. afraid they put it in early online, so I'm going to ask that, and then we'll go to the gentleman in, in person. Simone Stuntz asks, should minerals be displayed in their place of origin as an on-site display, I suppose, as opposed to taking them away and, and far away... Or, are, are there on-site displays, or are, these, or are the sites too remote, too dangerous, as we saw in Pakistan? Yeah, I mean, if you imagine trying to display that in Pakistan at that mountain range, it, it, it's, Pretty hard. It, it's impossible. Okay. Yeah, it's not even feasible, unfortunately. Okay, and the final question. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my question is not related to uh, value as much, but uh, just like diamonds can be grown in a lab, mm. I wonder if it is also possible for um, for minerals, and where th where that where that is at the point, not asking whether um, diamonds have more value if they're lab grown or not, just out of curiosity. So it, it can be done certainly, and there are some fabulous crystals that have been grown, you know, by Bell Labs in the U.S. And there was mm -hmm. an entire city in Russia that was focused had like thousands of PhDs and nothing but grow crystals in Novosibirsk. So they can be done, um, but for whatever reason, you can really tell pretty much just on how they look and how they were formed and lack of matrix, which is the mother stone that the crystals form on. If, you're, if you know what you're looking at, you can get a pretty good idea um, that these things have been synthetic. Now, what's really impressive is they, so aquamarine, which is blue, beryllium, aluminum, silicate, is the same as emerald, which is chrome and vanadium green beryllium aluminum silicate. So I've seen back in the day some Russian scientists that took aquamarine crystals, which were valueless, a few dollars a piece, and grew coatings of emerald on the outside. So the morphology looked natural, but it was only emerald on the outside. But that's certainly something that I can, Mr. Gemstone here would know I, more I about. I can speak to it yeah. too before I turn it to Alan, and this is an important thing. To think about uh, how these things form in nature you're talking about something, the volume of the Empire State Building on its side, underground, and that's at 800 degrees Celsius, or 1,000 degrees Celsius, cooling over 50 million years with all these elements and different pressures and temperatures and these crystals form. And if you're trying to simulate just diamond, man's been able to do that. But in these crystals, like this piece that's up on the screen right now, you're looking at quartz, calcopyrite, tetrahedrite, and rhodochrosite. So each one of those has a different chemical structure, a different composition, they form at different temperatures, and they, they have different reactions. So to duplicate that in a lab for something, the intrinsic value of that rhodochrosite or of the, 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 the value that you'd get out of the sulfide minerals is a few dollars. They, they would never have the, the science or the interest in creating that science to grow this, it would be next to impossible. So it's, it's, it's not economically feasible, and it, it's, it's almost humanly impossible at this point, so. I think what's interesting for me is like when gemology is difficult because you take these minerals that might be natural and synthetic, you cut them, then there's no external morphology. When you grow, say, emeralds, you look at the external morphology, they look vastly different from the stuff that comes out of the ground. So it's an easy, easy see. Um, I think what's really great is there are some minerals you can't grow, like things like kunzite and things like tourmaline. We had in a museum a, 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 a lovely device came in, we called it the volcanic bomb, which basically put all the ingredients of your mineral and then you raise this thing under huge pressure and temperature just to see what would grow. And they were trying to grow as, you know, how to, can we grow kunzite? It's like Danny when yeah, he was but, eight years old. Yeah, exactly. you know, <laughs> but we need to, we can't get this thing up to, uh, you know, nine kilobars. It's just impossible. So nature's beaten us to it and we'll never grow those minerals until we improve the technology. But I think the most interesting thing is about the external morphology. Time is a factor, the yeah. ingredients are a factor. Uh, it's very difficult to mimic, but some you can. But it's, that's a really great field to be in All the well. synthetic crystal forms of things that they can grow in labs, which I've seen emerald, I've seen quartz, rubies. I've seen yep. rubies, rubies yep. all grown. 
immediately visually, if you put them in front of the three of us, we can go fake, 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 or synthetic, 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 <laughs> immediately. It's, it's, it, you would all be able to figure it out in minutes. Where it gets dicey is when you cut them into gems, and that's where we rely on the, the labs who can look at them under high magnification, do different property tests, and they can also understand whether something's been grown or treated in a lab, and that's, that's where the, you know, the basis of all the science goes to def define where these things fall and what correlation of value and importance. But I will say, as the prices continue to skyrocket, it's not impossible. <laughs> I mean, in our lifetime, the world record for a mineral price was 125000 yeah, in the late 80s. We paid 85000 for the, the rhodochrosite, and it's tens of millions now. Yeah, the first mineral that sold for over a million was in 1999. And today, one is sold for forty million. So. I think one of the most fascinating parts is not really that people know nowadays they can take the various constituents of a mineral and glue them together. You know, so you might look in a case and think like, when you experience looking at minerals, <laughs> you could say like, that doesn't quite look right. You get a knack about a certain specimen. Like, you know, when you get when you see crystals that are growing together, they have a certain alignment in some respects. So you get, yeah. when you get a haphazard mass, you think like, that is not right. And so I, I would say to any of you out there collecting minerals or going in the subject, look as, as much as you can. Really get to understand the objects, talk to the dealers, talk to collectors, and you'll get your eye. And that's one, of the most, that's one of the most great things about it, is to be able to do that. Yeah. And on that note, I would urge everyone to go down to stand 509 to see some of these remarkable things in themselves. These the pictures are amazing, but they really don't compete with the real thing. Um, all that's left for me to do is to thank our speakers, Joel Barch, Alan Hart, Daniel Trinchillo, and thank Masterpiece London for hosting us tonight. I hope you've enjoyed this event as much as I have. Thank you very much. Thank you.